inspiration. You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders. I'm Julie Goodnight, and thank you for listening to my podcast about horses and equestrian sports. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to hit subscribe, and that way you won't miss a single episode. Thank you for taking the time to give me a rating and leave a review if you can. I really appreciate the five-star reviews, and I love reading your comments, and we really value your help in making this podcast better. Since the last time I recorded, we've been learning to navigate this new post-COVID world, um, how we get back to doing business. And since I normally spend about 25 or 30 weeks a year traveling around the country, sometimes internationally, to do public speaking and to training demonstrations and the like at horse fairs and expos and horsemanship clinics. That's what I mostly spend my time doing. And since I have been grounded, all travel, uh, non-essential travel has come to a screeching halt. All of the events I was booked for in the first half of 2020 have been canceled except for one horsemanship uh, retreat I did at a small uh, mountain resort called the Silesi U Ranch. That was a clinic we held last month. Uh, co-taught it with Barbara Schulte. We had 20 participants in the clinic, which was almost about half as many as normal. But it was a great clinic nonetheless. It was a fabulous experience. The resort had been over backwards in the um, COVID precautions they were taking, and the guests were well-behaved in that regard as well. We we wore our face masks um, when we were inside, but frankly, we spent most of our time outside in the fresh air and sunshine, and um, so it turned out to be a fabulous event. But for the rest of the summer, I am grounded. And so I'm here at home in the mountains of Colorado, enjoying this incredible summer weather. We've made major adjustments to our business because of my lack of ability to travel and the um, lack of revenue that resulted. We've worked really hard to connect with our followers through daily posting of horsemanship lessons. So throughout the entire shutdown for two solid months, we posted either live or pre-recorded lessons every day, seven days a week. So two months worth. Um, Those lessons are still posted, still available for free at juliegoodnight.com slash daily doses. And that was a super fun. We did groundwork lessons. We did mounted lessons in the arena. We did living room lessons for those people that were um, stuck at home. And I did uh, Pilates workout that I enjoy doing and all sorts of fun stuff. So that was, that was fabulous. And again, you can find all of those postings at uh, juliegoodnight.com. So as that 
uh, as the shutdown wound down, I got involved with another new project, which is the foster training of one special little horse. He's a four-year-old paint horse. He's a lovely horse, um, a horse of a different color, you might say. He is a white-headed paint horse, and he is uh, stone-cold deaf. He This horse has zero hearing. Uh, you could run a chainsaw right next to him, and he wouldn't know. And um, that doesn't really affect horses too much in terms of how we train them and how we manage them. And, um, you know, it, if anything, it seems to have made this horse more endearing and more special. But I'm training this horse and doing it um, through live posting on Facebook, as well as uh, some edited episodic series of uh, training Doc Gunner. And primarily, we're getting behind this social media campaign in order to bring awareness to the fact that there are anywhere from, experts say, from 100,000 to 200,000 horses at risk in the United States right now, at risk of homelessness, uh, neglect, abuse, or worse. Um, sometimes the only thing standing between that horse and a successful life is uh, someone stepping in and intervening and finding the horse the help he needs to have a successful life and to find that forever home. So um, oftentimes, uh, all that horse needs is a temporary landing place. And so many of us out there, many horse people, have the capability of occasionally taking a horse in temporary foster care, or in my case, foster training for an uneducated horse that sets that horse up for a successful successful adoption and a bright future. And so even though you may not be in a position to adopt a horse or have another horse yourself, you may have an empty stall or a space or have a few months uh, extra time and able to work on a horse. So you can find out how you can help at myrighthorse.org. And that is a network um, nonprofit network sponsored by the ASPCA that helps uh, unite horse rescues all over the country. And you can find out about their partner rescues in your region. So be sure to check out the um, postings on training.gunner. I think you'll get a kick out of that. And that basically leads us to the topic for this podcast, which is evaluating an unknown horse. Now, this is something horse trainers do all the time, uh, evaluate horses and figure out how we're going to get along with them and train them and figure out what they need. But as I have launched this social campaign of training Doc Gunner, I have been evaluating that horse sort of out loud in real time and trying to figure out what he knows and doesn't know and what holes we need to fill. And he's there's been many conundrums with this horse of what he knows and doesn't know. Is he, is he trained to ride or not? We don't know. And um, so that's today's topic. Often the history of a horse does not follow him throughout his life. Maybe he bought a horse at an auction Maybe you rescued an abandoned horse or were given a horse. 
but for whatever reason, you end up with a horse and zero history on this horse. You know, you can estimate how old the horse is by looking in his mouth, um, by getting a veterinary exam. But beyond that, you may know nothing. So what do you do now? How do you move forward from there? Is he trained or untrained? What's he like to handle? Is he compliant and obedient or is he, you know, spoiled and aggressive? Uh, will he be easy to ride? You know, what do I do first? These are all the questions that I'll discuss in this month's podcast on evaluating an unknown horse. My evaluation of any horse is always going to start with simple observation and in terms of a horse that's completely unknown to me, which, by the way, happens all the time when I do horsemanship clinics, I'll have, you know, 20, 25 horses for a weekend, none of whom I've ever seen before or know anything about until I've met the owners and talked to the owners and asked them questions. So my initial evaluation of an unknown horse always just starts with simple observation. Now, if that horse has come to my property for training, he's going to be in a pen literally right outside uh, my house. And so that observation will also include watching the horse throughout the day and night and early in the morning just to try to get more clues about his behavior and temperament. So some of the things right off the bat that I'm going to be looking for in terms of trying to figure out a horse that's completely unknown is, first of all, I want to figure out his age. Uh, I need an approximation of his age. And if you have an eye for horses, that's not hard to do based on their body shape. And so a horse changes shape in his body every year of life of, let's say, you know, 30 years of life. And so you, you know, a yearling looks completely different from a two-year-old, looks completely different from a three- or four-year-old. A middle-aged horse uh, versus a young horse, a senior horse versus a middle-aged horse, these are all things you can see in the body shape of the horse. Also, there's going to be clues there of his conditioning. Was he ever in good condition, never in good condition? Was he, you know you know, suffering with health conditions or malnutrition, anything like that. Um, these are all clues about the horse's past. So I also want to observe, you know, his body type, what type of horse, a light horse, heavy horse. Uh, can I, is there a discernible breed, um, whether that be Arabian, Morgan, saddlebred, draft breed, um, quarter horse, is there something that stands out of that horse that he's either a bred, uh, particular purebred or a crossbred? Because that, that tells me something about temperament, and that could be an indicator one way of a horse having a history or not. Um, is there any indication the horse is registered? You know, these days, DNA testing uh, will give you a lot of information on in terms of the horse's breeding history, but that doesn't tell you much about his life history, and that's what we really need to know about in terms of whether or not this horse is, is trained um, and what he knows. So there could be also some physical clues in the horse's body, 
I'm looking for scars. I'm looking for injury, or, you know, signs of old injuries. I'm looking for performance injuries, old performance injuries um, is, you know, one thing I would always check is the mouth of a horse. Uh, are there scars on his tongue? That could be very telling. Are there marks on his face where his um, he had a halter on when he was young and his face grew into the halter? Are there um, any kind of scarring around his mouth? There's uh, is he does he have a tattoo under his lip, meaning he might be an off the track thoroughbred? Is there indications on his legs that he's been treated um, for certain injuries? These kinds of things just gonna all be little tidbits of information that are little pieces of the puzzle that help you try to get a better understanding of the horse. So I'm observing from afar how the horse acts. I'm observing how he acts with others. And then I'm also observing how he acts with me. Now, let me just take a minute to say that even though our goal is to evaluate the horse and figure out, you know, what he knows and doesn't know and what he's going to be like, keep in mind that the horse is also evaluating you. And you only have one chance to make a first impression on that horse. So I'm really careful when I approach a horse I'm going to be working with or establishing a relationship with. I'm very conscientious about that process. I know the horse is just as busy forming an opinion about me as I am busy forming an opinion about him. So I want to make sure he, he sees the picture of strength and confidence and calmness in me. I want to make sure he sees a strong leader um, that makes good decisions. Um, all, all of these things, I, I want to make sure he understands that if I ask him something, I will follow through and reinforce on that ask. And, uh, I, I, you know, I want him to be forming all the right opinions of me right from the start. So I'm not going to get into, that's kind of a whole nother subject, but just keep that in mind. We're talking about evaluating this horse, but he's evaluating you in these first moments too. So right away, uh, in this observation from afar and from my first encounter, I'm starting to analyze the horse's temperament. You know, is he hot-blooded or cold-blooded? A, a hot-blooded horse is simply defined as a horse that's highly reactive to all environmental stimuli. And a cold-blooded horse then would be one that is not reactive to stimuli. And so um, there are breeds that we think of as hot-blooded, like thoroughbreds and Arabians and many others. And there are breeds that we think of as cold-blooded, like uh, draft horses. And a lot of people think of quarter horses as uh, cold-blooded horses. I don't, but a lot of people do. Um, so it's, it's not just a factor of breeding. It's really a factor of temperament. Um, so is this horse super sensitive? Is he insensitive? Is he, you know, highly distractible or is he highly observant? Is he a thinking horse or a horse that's prone to shut down? 
Um, what's his emotional behavior like? Does he have a high fear level or a high curiosity level? Is he interested in people or does he shy away from people or act um, like he doesn't like people? Is he used to pushing people around? Does he have boundaries? Is he a horse that wants to move into my space or is he a horse that's trying to get away from me? So these are all things I'm um, trying to suss out of the horse as I work with him, as I interact with him, as I touch him. And um, also we you know, start getting into the horse's behavior. Now, keep in mind that there are only two types of behaviors, instinctive behaviors and learned behaviors. Instinctive behaviors are things like flight and fight and um, basic life instincts and instinctive behaviors pretty much the horse is born with. And they're in a horse virtually fully formed at birth. Learned behavior is everything that comes after that. And horses, because they're flight animals and prey animals, they also are exceptionally fast learning and adapting animals. And so they learn lightning quick. And so I am trying to figure out from my first encounter with this horse I know nothing about how much he knows and doesn't know. So for the most part, I'm going to treat him and act like I think he's a normal horse. I would kind of I try in my head to treat him or act like he's my own horse. I might be a little bit slower, a little bit more methodical in the things I do. Uh, I might take, you know, if he's a nervous, skittish, hot-blooded horse, I might move a little slower and I would maybe take care to glance down, round my shoulders, give a real non-threatening look to my body language. But otherwise, I'm trying to figure out what he knows. So I want to try to act normally around the horse. And I, in particular, I want to be observant of his manners. You know, manners aren't accidental. And a horse is taught to act in a, a certain way around people. And to be uh, respectful of their space and not enter their space unless asked and, you know, to walk alongside you without pulling on the rope or crowding you, to walk the speed you walk, to stand still um, and to pay attention or, um, or zone out. Those, you know, these are all things that these are expected uh, ways of behaving um, that we teach to horses. If a horse has never been educated or uh, handled much, it it probably is obvious. Will become obvious. Actually, I would say that if he's well trained, it should be obvious. It won't always be obvious if the horse is trained or untrained. If he's acting in a rude and dominant or aggressive way, because that is also learned behavior. So remember. Horses learn lightning quick for better or for worse. And so, for instance, you could have a horse that was really well-trained as a young horse, maybe up until he was six years old, and he maybe he was shown and traveled all over and handled really well. 
But then maybe he had three, four, five years of really poor handling where he got spoiled, he got fed treats, he started learned to move into people's spaces, um, he learned to pull the rope, he learned to get away with things, and he became, you know, what we think of as a spoiled horse. So this is still a trained horse. He's just learned new behaviors that we don't like. And so horses learn bad stuff just as fast as they learn good stuff. And so part of what I'm evaluating in terms of what the horse has learned and hasn't learned, you know, just because this horse before me is acting rude and unmanageable doesn't mean he was never trained. It, it it could be the result of many things in his more recent history. So when I, for instance, say to that horse who's, you know, headbutting me or bumping me with his shoulder and I, you know, just back him off and jerk that rope and say, hey, knock it off, Bodine. You know, this is, you don't act that way around me. You'd be surprised how often a horse will snap to that was previously trained when he gets handled appropriately again. So these are kind of the things I'm looking for. Um, what are his, uh, what behaviors are instinctive? What behaviors are learned? Um, does he have good training? Does he have bad training? It, or is he simply completely untrained? And in many ways, that's the easiest thing to deal with. You know, if I know he's an eight-year-old horse and he's um, hardly ever been haltered and gone out of his pen, then uh, that that means I don't have a lot of investigative work to do. So, but if what I'm starting with is an eight-year-old horse and zero history, it's a whole different story. So another thing I'm looking for is uh, the horse's um, compliance. Um, if I, you know, gently put a little pressure on him and ask him to back up, does he step back or does he push and move into me? Is he a horse that wants to lean or push on pressure or move away from pressure? Generally, um, you know, horses by nature tend to be into pressure animals. They like to lean and push um, and, uh, you know, move into pressure. But on, but the flight response is, <coughs> but the flight response is definitely a move away from pressure type of behavior. So horses tend to be one way or the other. Um, although moving into pressure can easily just be a learned behavior when horses are improperly handled as young horses or even an older horse improperly handled uh, will learn will learn to move into pressure because they'll benefit from it um, in some way, unfortunately. So um, as I'm obsessing um, out, the way he responds to pressure, it also gives me an indication of the horse's level of compliance. Is he looking for ways to please me? Is he trying to do what I'm asking him to do? Is he thinking about it? Um, or is he just downright um, refusing and shutting down and um, not listening? Again, all of these can have to do with the horse's more recent handling. And, you know, I wouldn't write off a horse as being untrained or unmanageable in any way just because he's acting that way in this first moment. Because I've seen horses change behavior really fast for better or for worse when they're handled either properly or improperly. So 
next thing I want to start thinking about is what, what skills does this horse have? Uh, let's see if he loads in a trailer. Let's see if he'll stand quietly tied. Does he stand for the farrier? Um, does he act like he's been lunged before? Does he trot in hand with me? That's a real uh, indication that a horse has been trained. Um, horses won't naturally trot beside you without some kind of training behind them uh, when you're leading them in hand. So just start kind of messing around with that horse, grooming him, picking up his feet. And uh, are we getting red flags or green lights? Or I guess we should stick with one metaphor, red lights or green lights. And um, again, you can't account for the horse's recent experience. So if he was a horse that um, you know, early in his life, had a great training and education and, and had good life experiences, proper handling, but then he had a few years of poor handling or, or worse, then, um, you know, how, how hard is it to access the previous training that he had? Because horses never forget. Once you learn something, it cannot be unlearned. You just learn, you, but you continue to learn other stuff. And so I'm trying to um, understand more and more about this horse as I handle him on the ground. And um, another clue that might indicate whether, whether or not a horse's uh, previous history of training is how he handles new locations and new situations. And so let's say a horse just arrived at my property and I'm, as I walk him into the barn or into a stall or even through a gate, you know, is he just taking it in stride, a totally new place? Or is he really highly excitable, looking all around and, and nervous and scared? Same thing about the other horses. Is he overwhelmed with other horses around him or does he take it in stride? So, um, you know, if, if a horse has only ever been in one location in his life, let's say a farm in the, in the country somewhere, <clears throat> and then you pull him out of that, let's say he's an eight or 10 year old, 14 year old horse, and you pull him out of that situation, which is the entire world to him and the only thing he's ever known in life and you bring him to a new location, that horse would understandably be quite frantic because uh, not knowing that there were different places he would have to get used to, all of a sudden he landed on Mars. A horse that has a history of traveling, a history of going to trainers, going to trail rides, going to horse shows, hauling to the vet, um, hauling to the county fairgrounds to ride, going on trail rides, whatever, they have learned to accept new places and new situations with ease. And, uh, but that is generally learned and not natural to a horse. And so that's another um, little indicator that may tell me this horse has had more training and handling than, than maybe I thought. So that's all stuff I would be, you know, trying to look for clues and, and information for in terms of handling the horse from the ground. If at any stage of exploring the horse's manners and training and what he knows and doesn't know in terms of handling on the ground, 
I discovered he knew nothing and there was a big hole there, then I would know, okay, well, that's where we start. That's a, that's the first hole we got to fill. So kind of approaching things in the same order I would with a totally untrained horse. But if that horse, let's say it's, it's handling the legs and picking up the feet. Well, if the very first time I touch this horse, he allows me to run my hands all over his legs and pick up his feet and hold them up. I can probably check off that this horse is, is at least had that much training. And so I move on to the next thing. So at, at any point, a um, red flag occurs. We now consider that to be something that we got to work on. So once I've sussed everything out on the ground, if I've got nothing but green lights on handling the horse from the ground, and these, um, all these indicators are sort of adding up to make it seem as though this horse most certainly has had some training, has had some good handling and some good life experience. Next thing we want to do is check him out under saddle, figure out if this horse has ever been trained to ride. And so obviously first thing I'm going to do is, um, you know, get a saddle out and see what he does. <laughs> and one thing that I find to be very useful, and you could see me do this with Doc Gunner when we were trying to evaluate, we started having early on, we started having a lot of suspicion that this horse may had may have had some previous training. One, well, for one thing, he loads loads and unloads in a horse trailer and rides in a horse trailer really well. And so that doesn't come about accidentally either. Um, uh, one of the next clues was when we went to put a fly mask on him, even though he was a skittish horse and didn't like to be caught and didn't seem to want to be touched in some areas. When you go to put a fly mask on, he practically you know dove his face into the mask and anyone could put the mask on or take it off of him. So again, that doesn't happen accidentally. So we started thinking maybe this horse had more training. So I wanted to see if perhaps this horse had been saddled before. So the first thing I did was tie him up next to a broke horse. And I just uh, like next to him, but real close to him. And then I got a saddle pad out, threw it up on that horse, went and got the saddle, threw it up on that horse, you know, flopped the girth over, flopped the cinch over, kind of not, not overdoing it, but trying to, you know, provide plenty of stimuli. And he never um, seemed to notice or care. So then I brought the saddle pad up to him. I showed it to him. He looked at it. I started moving it around him. He he never seemed to care. He never tensed up. So I just kind of slung it up on his back like I would a broke horse. Didn't seem to care. So I went and got the saddle, did the same thing, threw it up on his back, and he never flinched a muscle. And so if at any point in the way of the way he had tensed up or looked like he didn't know what to expect or he didn't know what was coming next, I would have stopped right there and say, okay, no, we got to go through the regular training process with this horse. Maybe he was broke at one time, but he didn't, maybe he only had 30 days of riding. And so we're, we've got to really basically start over from scratch. So what we're looking for is the starting point in this horse's training 
And it, again, at any, any point we, we reach a red flag, we stop, fix that hole um, until we move on to the next thing. So as I progress through this under saddle work, um, keep in mind that I'm assuming no red flags are, are rising up as we go through this process. So, um, so I'm going to get the tack out and see what he does with it. Starting with the saddle pad and the saddle. When it's time to tighten the cinch, I will do it slowly. I'll walk him around a little bit, see if he's going to, you know, hump up to the saddle or get tense or bracy against the saddle. Um, if all of that goes really well, then um, I would probably think about well, I might take him to the round pin and or lunge him for a few minutes in the saddle to see if he's going to buck a little bit or resist against the saddle. And again, if so, we back up and proceed more slowly. But if I'm getting nothing but green lights there, I would probably think about putting a bridle on this horse. I would get a, a nice training head stall, no cavasson, a brow band head stall with a throat latch. I'd put a mylar snaffle bit on it. And I would just, um, you know, gently bridle the horse and see what he does with it. Does he act like he's been bridled before? Does he, you know, allow me to put his ears, you know, under the brow band and, um, you know, adjust the, the bit and you know, level it out in his mouth I don't mind if he mouths a bit a lot because it's chances of, I mean, if he was previously trained, the chances of me putting the exact same bit in his mouth that he was previously trained with are almost slim to nothing, uh, particularly since I only use mylar bits. Um, and, um, and I use some rather advanced snaffle-like bits. But so if he mouths that bit, I'm not too worried about it. It's more the process of bridling him that I'm looking for clues for. So I'm going to just wait and watch uh, after I put that head stall, no reins attached to it. I've got him uh, a halter on and lead rope underneath him. So I'm not going to put any pressure on the, on the bit. I just want to see how he does with the head stall in his mouth. If he acts like that seems normal, then I would proceed to putting reins on the bit and I would ask him for lateral flexion first. So I would um, just stand uh, right next to him at his withers. He's saddled and bridled now. And I would, uh, I would start on the left side of the horse, the near side of the horse. I'd put my right hand probably up on the saddle, holding onto the pommel or the horn and I would slide my hand down the left rein about, um, you know, a third of the way down the rein. And then I would slowly and gently bring my hand up and in towards the wither of the horse right in front of the saddle. And um, I would see if this horse understands lateral flexion. And so what we want the horse to do is bring his nose to the side in response to that pressure on the rein. And we want him to release the pressure on the rein. So I slowly and softly pick up the rein and lay it on his wither. And then I let the horse bring his nose 
towards my hand and put slack in the rein. That's the proper response to lateral flexion. And if he gave me a proper response, I'd be saying, oh, okay, now this horse has had a, a bridle in his mouth before or a bit in his mouth before because that is a trained response. So I would check lateral flexion on both sides. Now, again, maybe the horse needed a little bit of a review. Maybe he was a little bit bracy and reactive at first, but then he um, gave the correct response really uh, well uh, shortly thereafter. That's okay. I'd say, okay, he's probably been trained before. So I'd, work, I'd do lateral flexion on one side, then I'd go over and do it on the other. Then I'd come back to the near side and I would ask for vertical flexion. And I would do that by uh, putting my right hand uh, reaching over his withers. So my right hand is on the right rein and my left hand is on the left rein, uh, more or less where they would be when I was riding. I would take up a soft contact on both reins and then just place my hand down on the wither of the horse so that when he uh, breaks at the pole and brings his chin in, he will put slack in the rein. And uh, so that's asking for vertical flexion. And again, uh, if he if he resisted at first, but then pretty quickly, uh, as soon as he gave, by the way, I would release both reins and pet him on the neck and ask again. I would do that four or five, six times. Um, and if I was getting good response by then, I'd say, okay, this horse is looking more and more like he's trained. So the next part of this deal is going to, uh, so, so now we've saddled this horse, we've bridled this horse, and he's given us a lot of green lights uh, that we are safe to continue to move forward to figure out how much he knows. Next thing I would do is think about mounting. Um, for this, you might want to consider using a header, uh, someone to stand at the head of the horse. I would probably have a halter and lead rope on underneath the bridle. I want the reins in my hand but I'm okay with somebody else holding the horse should he go to jumping around or whatever at any, at any stage of this mounting process. So consider using a header. If, if you don't have someone to help you, um, as many time horse trainers don't, um, I would use, you know, again, have a halter and a lead rope on, um, probably a rope halter and a training, long training lead um, underneath the bridle and I would be holding that uh, with a loose lead as I uh, went about gathering up the reins and acting like I was going to mount. So um, through this mount up process, again, remember I'm testing the horse to see what he's good with and what he's not good with. So I want to move slowly, but I want to act normally. I want to move slowly so that I find the exact place where the horse comes on becomes uncomfortable or gets nervous or shows me he doesn't know what I'm going to do. Um, and I want to go slowly so that I can also figure out if the horse is expecting what happens next because he's already done it before. So I'm watching for reactions from the horse, either um, relax, relaxation and acceptance or tension and nervousness. So I just approach the horse in a normal way as if I was going to mount. I gather up the reins. I grab the stirrup and turn it. You know, sometimes I might 
turn it a little bit more or flop the stirrup a little bit more to see if he's going to be reactive. I'll put my foot in the stirrup, um, pick it up, put it down a couple of times. Um, I'll hop on the ground a couple of times, see if any of that's going to make him nervous. Um, as I kind of come around into the position where I'm going to step up onto that horse, I will gently poke my toe in his girth area. This is something that happens all the time to broke horses. When people mount, they jab them with their toe. And we have to, uh, an untrained horse that's never had a toe stuck in their girth is probably going to react to it. So um, for me, when I'm training a young colt um, and we're training the mounting and dismounting process, I always want to introduce to the to the colt those things which I know he's going to have to get used to, like the toe jabbing him or the knee hitting him in the flank or the lay, your foot hitting him on the butt as you cross over or slamming down onto his back. These are all sensations that the horse has to be trained to accept. So as I'm mounting up on this horse, trying to figure out what he knows and doesn't know, I'll kind of stick my toe in his, in, in his girth area, see if he's reactive. I'll kind of bounce up some weight in the stirrup, see if he reacts. Um, you know, I'd never want to hang off the side of a horse on the stirrup. So as soon as possible, when I'm stepping up, I want to center my weight over the saddle on my right forearm um, or by leaning my belly, um, across the, the twist of the saddle. So, um, but I'll, I'll kind of step up there slowly because we, you'd be surprised how a, a gentle and compliant horse will take a lot of things up until now, but that having the vision and the sight and the sensation of a rider putting weight on his back or being up above him um, can cause a reaction. So I'm, I'm moving slowly enough to determine if the horse is going to react in any way. So if I'm getting nothing but green lights, um, you know, like I said, I'll rub my, I'll rub my right leg in his flank a little bit, see if that's going to bother him. Uh, as I swing my leg over the back, I might kind of um, gently drag my foot across his rump um, an untrained horse would certainly react to that um, in most instances. Um, I never sit down on a horse hard because that, that could, could hurt them. And uh, so I would ease into the saddle, but once I'm in the saddle, I want to kind of sit down, stand up, move around the saddle a little bit, swing my legs from side to side, adjust the saddle from side to side by pulling down on the stirrup. Um, all of these things are normal things that we do on a riding horse. And if the horse had never been ridden before, he almost certainly re would be reacting to, to some of these things. So um, if I've gone through all of that and still had nothing but green lights, then the next thing I want to do is check how that horse is going to be moving. Now, remember, forward motion is the basis of all training in horses. So we want to get that horse moving forward as, as soon as possible. So maybe I'm in a round pin now or a small arena. And uh, maybe I want to let my header lead me around a couple of times, make sure the horse is okay with me moving. I'll repeat what I just did standing still. Stand up, sit down while we're walking, swing my legs, move around, touch his rump, re lean, lean forward, pet him on the neck, 
um, clap my hand on my thigh. Um, you may think this sounds funny, but I would um, spit off the horse. I would laugh and sneeze off the horse. All of these things are small things horses can react to if they've never been ridden before. And so if I'm getting green lights from all of that now while we're moving, I would probably go ahead and have that header. Um, if I'm in a round pen, I would have her just unclip the lead line and, and kind of help me um, move the horse forward. Um, once that horse is, is moving forward, it's pretty easy to figure out um, how much he knows from there. And uh, in terms of steering and stopping and um, will he collect up? Does he, you know, can he cue for gates? And, um, you know, so from there, we just start riding that horse and uh, figure out what he knows and doesn't know. Now, you may have to um, do this evaluation over multiple days because if the horse is, let's say, middle-aged now and, and he only had, um, let's say, you know, a few months worth of training way back when, he's not just going to click right into that. Uh, but you might find that over the course of the first week, let's say, of, of doing all of that every day, he um, settles back into his training or he, he recalls his training just a little bit better after a refresher. So your evaluation of a horse never stops, but it, um, it starts from the first second I lay eyes on a horse, um, the first time I put pressure on that horse. Um, there's a lot of first times that we're tr trying to observe, um, but basically you're going to follow a, a course of training or follow a checklist, starting with the most basic stuff like ground manners and ground handling, picking up the feet, loading in a trailer, all that kind of stuff and then moving on um, through the saddle training process. At any step of the way, um, the horse is giving you nothing but red lights. You, you, you can safely assume the horse does not know anything. If the horse has been spoiled before and learned some bad things after he learned good things, hopefully with some consistent handling in a short amount of time, he will go back to his old ways, which were uh, the good ways. Keep in mind that behavior is never good or bad. It's behavior. It's a way of acting. And uh, horses can learn bad ways of acting just as quickly as they learn good ways of acting. And so we don't want to put place judgment on um, behavior. And, but what we can say is, is that behavior desirable or undesirable to us? It's, it's always desirable to the horse. Otherwise he wouldn't be acting that way, but is it undesirable to us? And, um, so sometimes a horse has learned undesirable behaviors, but that doesn't mean he wasn't a trained horse, um, with highly desirable behaviors at one time. And it's our job to bring the good out in the horse. So those are my thoughts for evaluating an unknown horse. I hope that helps you in the next relationship with that you start with a horse. And remember, if you're in a position to help foster a horse, either uh, just to take care of him, give him the health needs, um, nutrition and health needs, or if you're able to actually foster train a horse that just needs a little bit of help 
to become a better citizen, to be more successful in his future, be sure to go to myrighthorse.org and find a uh, partner rescue or sanctuary in your area and find out how you can help. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, What the Hey Q&A. And by the way, it's not just my favorite part of the podcast because I love saying that, and I do. It's really my favorite part of the podcast because these are real questions from real listeners, and it is my opportunity to actually really help someone in a way they need help most, not just force-feeding information to you. So I love answering questions. It's always my favorite part of, uh, of any interaction that I do. And so each month we get questions from our listeners. If you wish to submit your own question, uh, you can do so at by emailing podcast at juliegoodnight.com. We've got some great questions this month, so let's go ahead and get started. Megan, go ahead and read the first question. Our first question comes from Donna. She says, my daughter's horse pulls on his bit. He pulls his head down and out when she tries to stop and turn. He responds well to my hackamore, but she can't use a hackamore in the show ring. Okay, Donna, well, what you're describing are classic symptoms of a horse that's inappropriately bitted, of a horse that hates his bit and is looking for ways in particular to get pressure off his tongue. And so he roots the bit forward, stiffens his neck, and then when he pulls his head back, uh, he gets a release of pressure. So unfortunately, um, so this is most likely a combination of the wrong bit for your horse. Also, uh, it is a response to the actions of the rider. And so when riders are leaning or pulling on the bit, horses develop that same behavior in defense. And, and so this is going to be a factor of finding the right bit for your horse, one that's also compliant with the rule book under which you compete or which your daughter competes. And, and then retraining the rider to use their hands appropriately, to use contact appropriately, to release the horse at the correct moment. Uh, most horses that have developed the habit of rooting the reins, that generally starts with the rider. So, um, you know, the habit also exists in your horse. And so you might find that even when you get everything right, the bit right bit, um, and the rider rides with more appropriate contact and, and more importantly, a uh, better release, then the horse should stop rooting. But sometimes that's habitually ingrained in the horse. And so we have to actually train the horse not to do that. And then I just simply take a locking or blocking pressure on one rein so that, and, you know, put, push that hand against the pommel of my saddle so that on one rein, so that when he roots it, he hits a, a solid object. And once or twice of that should stop him. Um, but this will go on and on and on till we get the right bit in the horse's mouth and also uh, retrain the rider. So I would have to ask you like a ton of questions, um, like at least a dozen questions to to begin to understand what 
the right bit for your horse is. And by the way, a horse doesn't use the same bit his entire lifetime. He, as he advances in his training, we advance the bit. And um, people have a misunderstanding of this, but in general, what we want to do is to advance the bit to be uh, more comfortable for the horse and more productive for the well-trained horse where you're actually using less and less and less bit pressure, hopefully. So um, my advice to you would be to take advantage of this free service. One of the foremost experts on bits in the entire world is Dale Myler. And you can um, you just go to toklat.com. That's T-O-K-L-A-T.com. Click on Myler Bits and look for the bidding assistant or the bidding questionnaire. And you can also find that from my website at juliegoodnight.com slash Myler. And there will be a little brief questionnaire and you will fill it out, hit submit, and you'll actually get a recommendation um, for a Myler bit from either Dale Myler himself or from another uh, professional in that organization. And so I would uh, take a look at that. Also, if you look at my website and go to juliegoodnight.com bits, you can read about all the different Myler bits that I use on my horses, what type of horses for what type of bit, when I advance them, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of great information about bits and bidding um, there on my website at juliegoodnight.com. So, Megan, next question, please. Our next question comes from Julie Kay. She says, my gelding has learned to slip his nylon halter when tied, so I've gone to a rope halter. And that worked for a bit. Then the other day, I caught him in the act. I had a picket line collar made out of leather, thinking that might work. As of late, he has started pulling back. This is new behavior. He is 14, and I've had him for five years. How can I correct this? I wouldn't consider him a panic puller. Every time I'm at the barn, I've started tying him with a stretchy trailer tie. I have used the blockers, but he just casually steps back until he has slipped the lead all the way out. Help! Okay. All right, Julie Kay. Well, that is quite a story about how this horse has been systematically trained uh, not to tie and get loose and get out of its halter. And, you know, horses are such clever animals and they benefit in ways we don't begin to understand. And, and they learn so fast that when a horse early on in his training um, you know, either accidentally or on purpose pulls on that halter and rope and breaks something and gets loose, it trains him to do that again and again and again. When he learns he has the power to break equipment, he that's what he will do. If he never learns it, he quits trying very, very early on. And you have a horse that ties beautifully uh, for the rest of his life. And And so in your case... The horse has learned uh, from early on that he is able to slip the halter off over his ears and he's gotten better and better and better at it. And so in my mind, this is um, a factor of the horse being improperly haltered because in all of my career of all the thousands of horses I've worked with, 
Uh, I've never, ever had that happen. And so a halter needs to be adjusted. First, it needs to fit the horse correctly, whether it is a flat nylon halter, leather halter, or a rope halter. And it needs to be, you know, not snug around the nose band, but, but not gaping around the nose band. And the throat latch of that halter should come all the way up to the throat latch of the horse. So just like in your bridles and head stalls, uh, the throat latch, when properly adjusted, prevents the bridle or head stall or halter from slipping off over the horse's ears. And so uh, if you've ever ridden in a bridle that did not have a throat latch, you may have had that experience of the bridle just sometimes even with a horse just reaching down fast and biting at a fly and the head stall comes right over his ears. So I would suggest, first of all, that this would would have never happened from the very beginning had the horse um, been properly handled. So now he already knows this, and um, it's learned and very, very ingrained, and with each subsequent time he's gotten free, so to speak. Um, He's benefited from that. He's had instantaneous reward, sometimes significantly long reward. Uh, In other words, if he... Uh, slips out of his halter and gets over to uh, graze on the uh, nice green grass for five, ten minutes before someone comes and gets him, he's significantly benefited from that behavior. And so horses are extremely fast learning and then um, they're habitual. And then, you know, uh, the more time that goes on, the more ingrained the behavior becomes. So that's sort of the situation you are in. And uh, you bring up another really good point about the slow release clips. Um, I think you mentioned the blocker tie ring in particular. Though those are great unless and until the horse learns to pull the rope out of them, which they do pretty quickly. I've you know again, horses are such fast learning that uh, every horse I've ever used uh, the blocker tie ring on has uh, pretty quickly learned to pull the rope through the ring and then get all the way to the end wherever you put your stop knot. So eventually you put a stop knot in right at the regular length, and at that point it totally defeats the purpose of the tie ring. So you may as well just tie the horse up. And so um, I use a safe clip, which has a uh, which will provide a slow release should the horse pull hard, and it has an adjustable uh, screw that helps you adjust the tension on your lead rope. If you do have a horse that wants to test it or pull on it a little bit, you can uh, tighten up that tensioner. So that's one consideration. But the truth is, I don't like, when I'm training a horse to tie, I never want to use anything that would teach him ultimately to pull. So the any elasticated uh, tie lead, tie clip or um, a clip that gives a slow release they can pull the rope through um, inner tubes a popular thing people like to tie horses with and the idea is that it it softens the blow when the horse pulls but what ultimately happens is it teaches the horse to pull it teaches the horse to test lean on it and pull on it um, so I like using a rope halter from the beginning when training a horse to tie. Uh, I don't tie horses younger than yearlings. And um, I want to tie them in a super safe place, super comfortable place. 
So you don't think he's a panic puller. So this is all learned behavior. It sounds like he's um, learned it really well. I would ditch myself the stretchy trailer tie. That's going to contribute to your problem, not fix it. Um, I if, if I'm sure it's not a panic puller and there's a big difference, uh, this horse from its history, I can tell you, is not a panic puller. This is entirely learned. And it's, it's never going to, you can't unlearn behavior. So you, we can't magically wave a wand and erase this horse's memory. And he will forever know that when that halter, a certain kind of halter is on or when it's too, too loose, he can slip out of it. He knows he can pull the tie ring. All of that stuff he will forever know. So as you tie him with a stretchy bungee cord and he, he's going to start pulling on it and testing it. I've seen horses even actually enjoy the, the uh, pulling on, the, on, a, on an inner tube. So I'd be careful with that. So what I would do if it were me is I would find an extremely stout, secure place to tie my horse. I would use a very stout lead and rope halter, which I know he doesn't have the capacity to break. And I would probably use, we have some um, huge uh, pine trees <laughs> on our property right around the barn. So I would utilize something like that. When you tie them high, like in a high line, it's, it's great. It's harder for them to pull. But I would tie them someplace safe, solid, and comfortable that I was pretty sure he couldn't break and just let him work it out. He's going to pull on it. He's going to test it. He's going to try with all his might to break it. Hopefully he won't hurt himself in the process. Uh, the only other option I would say at this point is to teach the horse to ground tie, uh, make sure it's a bit ballistically taut, meaning that he doesn't break that ground tie rule. Um, even if a string of firecrackers goes off under his belly, um, that would be the only way you could trust him. But since he already kind of has this uh, mindset of trying to get away, that's that's going to be a difficult habit to break. I wish I wish I had better news for you. Um, so at this point, you can try to retrain as best you can, replace one behavior with another, um, teach the horse to ground tie, and and hopefully you can make an impact on this horse. So good luck. Megan, next question, please. The next question comes from Janice. She asks, how do you keep hay in front of your horses 24-7? Nets, free access, slow feeders? We free feed our horses hay all the time. And so when, when horses have had a restricted diet, they tend to want to gorge. And then, of course, the more sweet and palatable the hay is, the more they want to gorge. So part of the secret to free feeding hay is having the right hay. It needs to be, you know, I only buy highest quality, low protein grass hay. And we, it's in their outdoor pens, it's in their stall, you know, we, we have a bunker uh, corner of their stall, it's just a huge pile of hay. And we feed straight on the ground in the stalls in the corner, uh, um, not on top of shavings, but on top of clean mats in the corner where there are no shavings in the stall. And then out in the paddocks, we feed in big giant feeders that are big enough for large bales of hay. 
And um, certainly some hay goes to waste when you free feed always because they, you know, pull it down on the ground, stomp on it and pee in it and lie down in it and all that. But after a while, that kind of stabilizes and you learn to to watch how they're consuming it and you, you know, make them clean up the hay a little bit between um, when you replenish the feeders. But if you have a horse that's never free fed, he and the more, in my opinion, the more restricted a diet he's had, let's say he's been fed only twice a day and, and the hay he's been eating is high protein, high palatability, and he eats it in about 20 minutes. Um, he goes all that time, like 10, 12 hours without eating. That's extremely stressful for a horse. And so those type of horses are the ones that, that might gorge hay at first. And so you might have to go through an introduction period where you, you know, allow them access to the hay for two, three hours, then time up for an hour, and then, you know, so on and so forth. But um, generally, I just let them gorge it out until they're tired of gorging, and then they stabilize themselves usually within a week or two. Um, again, I can do that because I'm feeding a low-protein, all-grass hay. And so um, I, I know a lot of people with obese horses have difficulty with this concept. Um, I think the hay choice is part of it. If your horse is over-consuming, maybe you want to look for an even lower quality hay, you know, something that's uh, got a lot of uh, f- non-nutritional fiber in it, you know, stuff they don't, they're not really benefiting from, but not going to hurt them if they chew on it and eat it. So slow feeders work great if you are feeding horses individually, which we don't. So our horses, the ones that come in in stalls at night have um, their own hay but for the most of the part they're eating all together and so that's why the nets and all of that we don't we don't really use so but every every situation is different and if you're feeding horses individually I know the savvy feeder slow feeder works really well I've used that before um, when I've had horses that that needed needed it and were confined individually so I'm a little squeamish of the nets myself, particularly if they're on the ground. So the problem, you know, here's the dilemma. I want my horses to eat off the ground level, not on a raised manger situation or feeder or or hay net. Um, It's a proven fact that if you allow a horse to eat from a feeder or manger or something that's chest level or higher, he is way more prone to respiratory infection. And so he can only clear his airway of the the copious amount of dust particles in that hay when his neck and nose, when his neck is all the way down and his nose is all the way to the ground and he, you know, can clear his airway. So um, we don't want, we want horses to eat off the ground level. And so for that reason, the nets are, are, are not something I use. Um, some of our horses have slider shoes on their hind feet, and those in particular are easy to catch in a hay net. So that's just me, but every situation is different. Um, you're going to have to accustom that horse, gradually increase his hay until he's, um, I tell the people that do my feeding, you know, just gradually increase that horse's hay in his stall every feeding until he's leaving a little bit behind. And then you don't need to keep increasing it, um, but find the volume of hay where 
he doesn't just power it all down and then have nothing to eat. So we want to always a little bit in front of him. And usually within a week or two, the horse is going to adjust his eating habits to be consistent with their free choice. So it's a great thing to do with your horses when you can. So I hope you can get that worked out and good luck. Megan, next question, please. Our next question comes from Beverly. She says, I'm hoping to be traveling with my horse in the upcoming months. How often do I stop for my horse on longer trips? Barb, good question. And we always want to look out for the safety and welfare of our horses when traveling. And there's a lot that you can do to make them comfortable and to eliminate the stress. But how long you're going to travel with a given horse on a given day depends on a lot of different variables. And for one thing, um, weather conditions can have a bearing. If you're hauling in the south in uh, the summer when it's really hot, you're probably going to want to haul through the night and get there as fast as you can without stopping or minimizing the stopping. And also, what you're going to do on the other end of this trip is an important factor for the horse. If you need him to perform at his best when he gets there, you want to take longer to travel and give him more frequent breaks. If I were traveling cross-country with a horse that I needed to perform at his best when he got there or within a day or two of him getting there, I would probably stop every three or four hours, make sure that, um, you know, I opened the window, let him hang his head out, breathe some fresh air, eat, drink. Some horses are good travelers and they'll eat and drink while they're traveling, but most won't drink. And some won't even drink when they're in the trailer, period. And so I might, if I could, and my horse, if I, if I could, meaning the conditions were safe and my horse was a really good um, solid horse in the trailer loading and unloading and riding, I would go ahead and unload him once or twi twice during that, that all day trip and walk him, walk him, um, let him really stretch his legs out for about 10 minutes, uh, maybe uh, eat a little bit, drink a little bit outside the trailer and then load him back up. So all in all, maybe a half hour um, break. And so, however, if I were hauling a horse that was going to do nothing when he got to the other end and had all, all the time in the world to rest and recover from the trip, I kind of want to get to where I'm going as fast as I can. I believe that the longer you're on the road, the more places you stop, the more times you unload him, the more can go wrong. Uh, particularly if this is a horse that is uh, not a good trailerer um, and he, he just needs to get to his destination as quickly as is safely possible. And so there, the weather has a factor in all of this and, you know, who's driving and, and how many people are with you. I, I kind of feel like do I haul horses by myself sometimes? Yes. Multiple horses sometimes? Yes. I'm a pr professional and I've been doing it all my life. However, even as a professional, you, I always prefer to have someone with me, particularly if I'm hauling more than one horse, because um, you may need help if something goes wrong. Flat tire, got to unload the horses, whatever. So consider all of these things before you decide exactly how long your horse needs to rest. And so 
for us, almost anywhere we go is going to involve at least a three-hour drive through the mountains. And so we just want to get wherever we're going as quickly as we can and get the horses out of the trailer. I'll let them rest on the other end of the trip. If I have to leave a day early so they have a whole day of rest, then I'll do that too. If my horse is a road warrior and he trailers really well and I, you know, when I unload him from the trailer, it's it's apparent that he's hardly moved a muscle and he's been really relaxed, then um, that horse can obviously handle a longer trip um, without being stressed. So there's just so many variables that there's no one answer to that question. But I hope that helped in terms of giving you a few things to think about. So I think we have one more question, Megan. Our last question comes from Miranda. She asks, what are the best ways to work your horse on minimal space? I have a 40-foot round pen and my driveway. My poor horse is suffering with the lack of space. I need some ideas on how to get her moving. Miranda, I would say right off the bat, your challenges are huge. A 40-foot round pen is not useful for much. It, it would be fine for a confinement pen for storing a horse, but it's too small to work the horse in any way. So even for the horse to trot that tight of the circle, would be very difficult. So if I had limited space and was going and wanted to build a the most comfortable turnout for my horse, I would want a long slender pen. And so what horses want the most in terms of exercise on their own is long straight lines where they can really, you know, open up the throttles and run as fast as they can in in uh, sort of in in um, simulation of the flight response, and then they like to wheel around and run the other way just as fast. And so, if I was super limited on my property, but I had, you know, like I could fence a twelve foot alleyway the whole length of my property. That would be an awesome turnout for horses. They'd really be able to run a long straight line, and that's what they would want to do. So in terms of working your horse, a 40-foot round pen, there's really almost nothing you can do in there, to be honest. You could, it'd be fine for ground tying or doing some desensitizing, um, and it's just, it's just too small a space. And so... The driveway, I like the sounds of that better. So you can move that horse forward, going up and down the driveway, trotting the horse in hand up and down the driveway. I would consider, um, you know, what does the road look like at the end of your driveway? I'd be riding down the road or leading my horse down the road or in a pasture or something. So if you literally only have a 40-foot round pen in his stall or whatever, this horse number one, needs more turnout for his own well-being. He needs more exercise for his own health. And for you to accomplish any kind of training, you're going to need some more space than that. Like, I don't think you have to have everything, but I would, I would uh, consider at least expanding that, that round pit pin to the 60-foot diameter. If you could get 70 or 80, you'd have a good riding pin. Um, 
if none of that is possible, you're, I would invest in a truck and trailer and I would be hauling my horse to the county fairgrounds or to stables that indoor arenas or what have you that allow you to pay a you know $5 haul-in fee uh, to use the, the facilities. And so, you know, it, it, it begs an important question. What are the minimum requirements for someone to own a horse? And certainly enough space for that horse to have um, adequate turnout and adequate exercise on his own volition is really important. So you're going to have to get creative here. I'm sure there's some spaces and some corners in your property you probably wouldn't have thought would be useful. Um, we, we call it our virtual trail ride that we have a path that goes all the way around our the perimeter of our property and it goes up and down the gullies and in and out and whatnot um, and that's great training space through the trees over the logs you know across the irrigation ditch and uh, so be creative but definitely we need to let that horse stretch his legs and let him minimally get the amount of exercise that a horse should get to maintain his health which is you'd be surprised it's a lot a lot of moving around so um, so good luck with that. Thank you for listening to this podcast on evaluating an unknown horse. It's been an interesting topic for me because it's not one I get the opportunity to talk about a lot. However, it's a big subject and the question gets asked a lot and people are interested in, in what goes through the head of a horse trainer as they're encountering a, a horse for the first time and, and trying to connect with that horse and understand that horse and figure out where to go with that horse. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And remember, you may find the solutions you need on a previously released podcast of mine, so be sure to check out the archives. And remember, be sure you hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a single episode. If you have questions for the What the Hay Q&A segment, or if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast and talking with me about your horse, please submit your questions via email to podcast at juliegoodnight.com. I'm Julie Goodnight. And don't forget to enjoy the ride. Be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com academy for more in-depth training advice. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate your good review on iTunes so more horse lovers just like you can find my podcast. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to enjoy the ride. Thank you.